Hey, all you listeners out there in Internet land and beyond, welcome to today's episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. All right. So I know you missed me last week because I missed you tremendously, literally up at night thinking about each and every one of you, all nine of you that are listening. And um, frankly, let's just put it past us because we are back today and we are back with a bang. And I mean that in the biggest sense of the term because we are joined by not only one of the nicest, funniest, and coolest individuals I know, but also happens to be a world-class researcher. I mean, literally a leader in the field of HIV research. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between, today we are joined by the one and only Dr. Daniel Duick, MD, PhD, and Chief of the Human Immunology Section at the Vaccine Research Center, a part of the National Institutes of Health. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with the NIH, it is located in our nation's capital. Actually, technically, it's located in Maryland. So, when given an opportunity, let's just say go Ravens and March Madness, go Terps. Uh, And I cannot tell you how excited I am for this episode. I mean, every episode of The Imposter is great. Let's not kid ourselves here, folks. But this episode is definitely up there, and it is truly... I mean, I, I just, I learned so much, and I've been very excited to air this one. So, I, I almost had a loss for words. I'm ecstatic. So, you will learn a lot. I will learn a lot. Let's just, let's just roll the intro song, and let's get into it, because it is so cool! All right, let's go. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we, I mean the general public, if it's something that oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around it's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literate you are. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Imposter Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Daniel Dweck. MD and PhD. It's, it's Duick. Duick. Yeah. Is it actually Duick? I don't know, actually. <laughs> it's spelled Duick. <laughs> and Dr. Dweck is, or Duick, <laughs> is chief of the human immunology section, or his, at the Vaccine Research Center in the NIH, the National Institute of Health. Institutes. Institutes. Apologies. And am don't I, be fooled. Am I going to be correcting you throughout this interview? You might do. Okay. You might do, Yeah. <laughs> Don't be fooled by his uh, his accent. It is in the United States of America, but you could be fooled. I was yes. Um, so thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Danny. I will I will call you Danny. So uh, your work is generally focused around HIV research, and you have kind of three areas of study. 
mm-hmm. as far as your website, uh, <laughs> your lab website has said. Yeah. That is HIV pathogenesis, yeah. HIV reservoirs, yeah. and the immune repertoire analysis yeah. and vaccine correlates. Yeah. All right, cool. So we're going to get into what all of those are. Okay. Um, and I think actually we should start from the beginning. Can you just give a quick rundown of what HIV is? Oh, HIV. All right, let's start off with a mistake. The HIV virus. The HIV virus. I really hate it when people say that okay. because the HIV. HIV stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. It's like saying um, the hoi polloi, which means the, the people. <laughs> the hoi polloi. I've yeah. Never heard. I like that. The hoi, hoi polloi is the people in the Greek. People. All right. right. People okay. say the hoi polloi when they're referring to the poor, for so example. So the people, the people. Anyway, HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, is um, what's called a lentivirus. And it's a virus that uh, infects CD4 T cells in your body. And those cells are part of the immune system and they're terribly, terribly important. So HIV infects CD4 T cells. And because it's a lentivirus, it integrates its own genome into your genome. So it becomes part of your genome. In so doing, it makes new copies of itself, and that causes the death of the infected cell through a number of mechanisms that we don't have to go through now. But what you end up with is, when you're infected, is you lose most of the CD4 T cells in your body very, very rapidly. And you hang on for about 10 years with few CD4 T cells. And then you get what are called opportunistic infections because your immune system collapses, basically. Been compromised. Yes. Yeah. And so you get um, the infectious diseases that, um, that, that characterize AIDS. And, uh, and then generally speaking, um, you die. But nowadays we have good drugs that treat it and we just need to treat more people. Right. And you mentioned the CD4 T cells. Mm. Those are white blood cells. Is that Those correct? are white blood cells. Yep. And that's generally one of two lymphocytes. Is it? There's T cells and B cells. There are T cells and B cells, and there are a few other white blood cells, uh, lymphocytes called NK cells, and a few other funny ones, which um, I don't think are that important. Other people will disagree with me. <laughs> um, but the main ones are T cells and B cells. The T cells kind of orchestrate immune responses and also kill uh, cancer cells and cells that are infected with viruses. And the B cells make antibodies Okay. That, that you know about. Yes. All right, so that right there outlines the importance of T cells. Well, mm. both cells, but because mm. your work primarily focuses T-cells. on T cells. Yes. Um, so that's important to know. Getting to your work, what is pathogenesis and specifically HIV pathogenesis? So pathogenesis is is trying to understand how the virus makes you sick. It's trying to understand the disease process, not the why. People say you're trying to understand why HIV makes you There's no whys in science, all right? Mm-hmm. The why is for religion and philosophy, <laughs> okay? Science, we have hows. So pathogenesis, how being infected with the virus makes you sick. So it's the whole process of... HIV transmission and then HIV infecting the cells and then depleting the CD4 T cells and then the progression to AIDS. And so trying to understand HIV disease pathogenesis, we understand all of those processes. And if we can understand those processes of how it makes you sick, Mm -hmm. then we can see at which points we can intervene therapeutically to make people better. And, uh, you know, antiretroviral drugs that people are on is an example of that. These are drugs that interfere with the replicative cycle of the virus and stop it replicating. And so you reduce levels of virus um, in you down to almost undetectable levels. And you, to all intents and purposes, halt 
hmm. the disease pathogenesis, the process of disease pathogenesis. Does it help in treatment or, in your case, looking for vaccines, that there are different processes? You know, so, um, as you were saying, in 10 years, your T-cell count will mm. be you know, severely mm. uh, depleted. So, because there is a certain amount of time, obviously, individuals vary, I'm assuming. But does it help that it's kind of split up into sections to treat um, Well, tricky question, but a good question. I think, first of all, one should say that most of the damage is done within the first three weeks of infection, right? This is what we understand now. And um, because there's a certain degree of redundancy in the immune system, you stay alive even with a severely depleted CD4 T-cell population for the next 10 years. Right. So what we've understood is if you are really going to try to make a big difference, and if you are going to potentially cure someone, and there are a lot of approaches to the cure, which um, I'm working on, um, as are many other people at the moment. If you really want to do that, then you have to try and intervene therapeutically as early as possible. Right. It's difficult to do because you can't catch people that early most of the time. But that's the kind of understanding that you can make a big difference if you treat people very early. After that, um, you tend not to see much of a difference between someone who is treated with the drugs at three months, um, one year, six years, 10 years. Hmm. If you get someone who has AIDS with, you know, a CD4 T cell count of four or something like that, really, really, really low, you put them on the drugs and they live. Hmm. And that was the, the amazing miracle that these drugs were when they came in um, in the 1990s. And I have, I have friends, I know people who were, you know, on intensive care units dying and they got the drugs and they lived and they're alive now. And it is absolutely remarkable. Hmm. It's a real miracle. It's a real, real achievement of science. For, for a relatively new disease, would you say it's come a long way in the research in such a short amount of time? I mean, because it was only around the I, 80s, I think we right? know, I don't know, I was going to say we know more about HIV than any other um, infectious disease. Um, that may be true. Hmm. We know an enormous amount about it. And... The, the beautiful is not a good word to use, but the, the remarkable thing about HIV and the research that we've done is that there have been kind of off-target effects of the research. So the drugs that are used to cure hepatitis C, for example, or the, the concept behind those drugs, um, not all of it, but some of that came out of the development of HIV drugs. Some cancers these days are being treated with uh, T-cells that have been genetically hmm. modified to attack the cancer. The genetic modification uses uh, lentiviruses, so they're HIV-based. And the whole field of human immunology, which is something that I do, grew out of HIV research. We invented human immunology, hmm. which now is used for cancer research, for hepatitis research. Vaccine research in general has come out of the advances we've made in HIV research. I mean, we've been working on an HIV vaccine for many years now, and I would say we don't really have a highly effective HIV vaccine uh, at the moment. But in, 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 my, in the vaccine research center where I work, we also have made vaccines for flu, West Nile, MERS, SARS, chikungunya, wow. Ebola, and Zika, and that all comes from our experience working on HIV. So, mm. you know, the, the benefits are very broad. 
And it's nice, you know, I can say that I work from AIDS to Zika. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you don't hear jokes about that often, no. so I appreciate the language. Or if I, if, I, if I did it in English, I work from AIDS to Zedka, but that, <laughs> that doesn't have the same effect. <laughs> no. um, all right, very interesting. So we'll keep on track here with the research topics uh, and move on. Now, I think most people that aren't in the sciences, when, especially in diseases and immunology, when you mention a reservoir, they're probably thinking about a damned body of water. Um, in your case, a reservoir is... I kind of like that. It's a damned body of, of virus. So the HIV reservoir is the cells in your body that contain virus, all right? When you put someone on antiretroviral drugs... Uh, the number of infected cells that's left, remember, mm -hmm. there's no more virus floating around in the blood anymore. It's sure. all been suppressed. The infected cells that are left represent the, the wider reservoir. Now, most of the virus that's in those cells is dead virus. Okay? Mm -hmm. it's, it's mutated itself. The cells have mutated it because the immune system can mutate it. Um, it's dead virus. A tiny proportion of that whole overall reservoir of infected cells, tiny proportion of it, we don't know how much, contains virus which is viable. And by mm. that I mean virus that, if that person stops the antiretroviral drugs, that viable reservoir will wake up and start making new virus. Mm. And it takes about two to four weeks, usually. Oh wow, that's fast. And it always comes back. Yeah, really? very fast. So these drugs are amazing. So. What we're interested in is studying what I call the reservoir that matters. Not so much the dead virus, but the virus that's viable and can come back to life again when you stop therapy. Now, the reason that I'm interested in studying that is because we're trying to find ways to... We, we used to call it cure people who are infected. We used to think about it getting rid of all the virus. What we're doing more recently, much more recently, is thinking about it in the same terms that the cancer doctors think about cancer. They don't think about curing cancer. They think about um, uh, putting someone in a state of remission. Mm -hmm. So remission right. would be you have someone who is HIV infected, you can stop the antiretroviral drugs, and their virus doesn't come back. I see. Whatever that takes. Right. And to be able to do that, we need to identify the reservoir, where the virus is hiding. Sure. Now, as far as my understanding, my limited understanding, you know, viruses mutate very fast. Some viruses, some viruses, okay. some, some don't mutate at all. Oh. So DNA viruses tend not to mutate. Okay. RNA viruses tend to mutate uh, more readily. And uh, retroviruses and lentiviruses, which are a type of retrovirus like HIV, mutate um, a lot um, for two reasons. One, they, the enzyme that makes the DNA copy that gets inserted into your genome mm -hmm. from the RNA of the virus, that enzyme, which is called um, reverse transcriptase, is unfaithful. All right, it's error prone. You laughed when I said unfaithful. I don't, did. I was thinking. Of, it's not funny. I was thinking of Richard Gear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the enzyme is error prone. So it makes lots of mistakes. Um, the other reason is that there are host enzymes, cellular enzymes, which recognize the virus as foreign and will go in and make mutations in the virus, trying to kill the virus. Now, most of these mutations will kill the virus, which is why most of the virus in your cells is dead virus. However, 
the ability to mutate gives that virus the ability to escape the immune response, right. to escape the drugs. All right, it will mutate and it will escape. Um, and because it mutates so quickly, every day you'll find a virus which will escape the immune system or escape the drugs. So what you have to do is to suppress virus replication because the degree of mutation is proportional to hmm. virus replication. So if you stop it replicating, it won't mutate. It's a race. Can I can I ask you a tangential question? You can. So everybody has their theories on the apocalypse and how it will happen. Do you think an urban center that is very crowded and has a potential for many people to contract a virus, would that be a possible scenario for an apocalyptic you know, situation? Some, I, I would hate to use the word super virus, but one that has... Well, it doesn't need to be a super virus. Yeah, I mean, well, exactly. you know, flu yeah. um, killed more people in fewer years than both world wars put together. That's actually insane to think about. Right. And that was the, you know, the 1917-ish hmm. flu epidemic. Yes, it's extraordinarily worrying, particularly with densely populated areas, cities, all of that. Does it worry me? Uh, yeah, it absolutely worries me. Um, but, you know, we have science these days and we have vaccines and we just need to stay ahead of it. And viruses will always come crawling out of the jungle, as we've sure. seen with Ebola mm -hmm. and Zika. You know, and Zika is bad, really bad. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of it and um, it might not make you that sick when you're infected. But if you're a fetus and your mother gets infected, it's a problem. And with global warming... Mm -hmm. the mosquito host for it yeah. is moving northwards mm -hmm. and it's in the Caribbean and it's uh, moving towards the great United States of America. Is there more to, I mean, do, do we have knowledge of developmental problems with, you know, the babies that are born with the kind of smaller heads? I mean, is there something besides a physical deformity? That oh, is well, it's called microcephaly. Okay. We, their brain is small. I mean, oh, it's, oh, I see, it's, I see. it's extremely severe. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah. All right. So the uh, immune repertoire analysis and the vaccine correlates. So immune repertoire analysis is trying to understand what... Okay. So when someone's infected with HIV, some people progress more rapidly than others. And we know that because I study pathogenesis and mm -hmm. other people study. And we just know it through epidemiological studies. So I'm interested in trying to understand what aspects of the immune system determine the rate of disease progression. The most extreme kind of version are these people that we call controllers, elite controllers or viremic controllers. And they're infected with the virus and then they control virus on their own with their immune system such that you can barely detect any virus at all. All right. And there's not many of them, about 1% of the population. They're infected but they control virus and they do it with their immune system. And so one of the aspects of my research is trying to understand how that happens, not why, how <laughs> that happens. And part of that is to understand the repertoire of T cells and of B cells that are specific for the virus that inhibit it. So we're, we're looking at the what's called the adaptive immune system, the T cells and B cells. And we're look, also looking at the innate immune system, um, which is the more kind of prime primeval the immune system that exists in cells. These enzymes, as I mentioned earlier, which recognize the virus and then try and mutate it and try to kill it. Right. You're bringing up an interesting point. You're talking about patients that are infected but have very reduced... That's another thing. We don't call them patients. They are people. People. 
people if they're not in a hospital being looked after. That's true. That's cool. true. And this isn't my. This isn't me. This is uh, the activists. Many of them who are good friends of mine who remind us scientists. They say after somebody gives a talk, we talk about the patients, and they say we're not patients. I'm sitting here and I'm not yeah. a patient. And then some people say, well, "What about subjects? We're not subjects." So we call them. If they're in a trial, we call them participants. I like that. The rest of the time, we call them people. It's 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 always good to have a reminder of humanity. Yeah, it is. It's, and I think especially in the scientific community, you do. Yeah. I can imagine it does yeah. get lost sometimes. Yeah. All right. So people that are infected. Mm -hmm. Now there, as far as I understand, there are people called uh, expose seronegative or expose uninfected. Yes. Which are uh, individuals that have been exposed to HIV many times, yes. but do not contract mm. it. How, how do those people play a role in, I mean, do you, do you use, you know, samples from them as? Well, it was the exposed uninfected who, I, I think they were, they were, they were probably discovered by my, my friend and colleague, Bill Paxton, um, in New York during the nineties. Bill Paxton. Yeah. Not the actor Bill Paxton. There oh, is an actor Bill There is a bit, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Bill is um, from Glasgow, and he's an extraordinarily good scientist, and mm. he, he works in Liverpool uh, now. And he heard about these people who were exposed and uninfected mm. uh, in the gay community in the 90s in New York. Mm. And they were investigated, and it was found that they lacked or they had a mutation in the co-receptor for HIV. So HIV, to get into a cell, binds to two molecules. One is CD4, and the other one is a molecule called CCR5. Doesn't matter what it is, but it's called CCR5, and the virus needs to attach to it to enter the cell. And these guys, the exposed uninfecteds, have a mutation in the gene, and so that molecule isn't expressed on the cell surface. And those exposed uninfecteds have a mutation in both copies of the genes. They hmm. don't have it. It is um, uh, at, uh, it's at slightly higher frequency in Ashkenazi Jews and really? generally higher frequency in uh, kind of Northern European uh, people. It doesn't really exist in Africa or Asia. Hmm. Um, why it's there, there are various theories. Um, and they are resistant, pretty much resistant to HIV infection. But there are lots of other HIV-exposed but uninfected people, and we don't know hmm. why they are not infected. And so we have one project in the lab trying to understand why a group of people that was part of a vaccine study, and the vaccine is basically irrelevant, and these people who are what we call high-risk individuals, during this vaccine study, some got infected and some didn't get infected. We know it was nothing to do with the vaccine because the vaccine didn't work. In fact, we don't know why, when exposed to the virus, some people get infected, some people don't get infected. We don't know why, if a person is exposed to the virus a hundred times, one of those exposures will lead to an infection, the other ones won't. We don't understand it. We suspect it's something to do with the state of inflammation of that individual. We don't know whether it's good or not good to have a state of heightened inflammation might depend on the route that the virus is transmitted to you. Um, so it's a very important area for research because it can give us clues as to how we can stop people becoming mm. infected. Now, just building off that real quick, would it be safe to say there are different strains of the virus? 
Is that is that the correct terminology? Yeah, there are different subtypes. Subtypes, okay. Um, the main subtype in America is subtype B, uh, and it came from the Caribbean and then before that from Africa. In Africa, the main subtypes are A, C, and D. Um, so there are, you know, about seven-ish main subtypes, and then mm. there are kind of um, uh, uh, cross crossovers between the subtypes there's lots so that that's in the sense of the, of the strains and those are subtypes of the m class of viruses and there's also o n and p which are other okay viruses and, and each one of those probably represents a different um event of transmission from a chimpanzee or gorilla to a human about a hundred or so years ago hmm. and that was siv and that was siv cpz Okay. Um, from the chimps, that's HIV-1. There's another one which looks like it came from gorillas. Oh, wow. And HIV-2 um, looks very much like the SIV that infects a monkey called the sooty mangabe. Okay. So it comes from that. It's basically genetically indistinguishable. And HIV is, it's, you know, if you look at the phylogenetic trees of viruses, of HIVs, um, SIV, CPZ fits in very nicely with all the HIV ones. Oh, really? Okay. So that's where it came from. Hmm. Chimpanzees, monkeys, and, and gorillas. Um, how it crossed over, um, the I think the current favorite theory of my friends who are looking into this is probably through um, hunting these animals and eating them. Mm -hmm. Bushmeat. It's not the bestiality myth that... I don't it's even know not, if that was familiar in It's your... not from fucking monkeys. Yes. Um, it's not from that. Um, and it's not... Um, and it wasn't made by the CIA. <laughs> Are you sure? And I don't want to cast any aspersions on the CIA, but <laughs> they, they often don't do very well. And, you know, it's terribly difficult to make a pathogenic mm. virus. You know, we play around with these viruses in the lab and anything you do to it disables it. They, yeah. Um, so it's not from that. So it's from eating. Now, why um, all of a sudden in the early part of the 20th century did it spread like wildfire? That's another thing. Hmm. Uh, because these transmission events of viruses have probably been happening for thousands and thousands of years that humans have been around. Why only now did it spread like that? Well, that goes back to your other point, population density, mm -hmm. transport, Cars, all of that. You had a paper come out with several of your colleagues in 2004 um, entitled CD4 plus T cells depletion during all stages of HIV disease occurs predominantly in the gastrointestinal tract. That was a great paper. That was pretty fascinating. <laughs> I was reading that. I was like, all right, this I, is pretty cool. That was, that was really um, changed the field. Really? Yeah, because... We used to think that HIV infection was a slow disease and you lost your CD4 T cells slowly and over the course of the 10 years or so of the disease. And then these friends of mine at the University of Minnesota, really prescient, were, were looking in tissues. Mm. The virus really isn't in blood and blood isn't really a tissue. It's not important um, for this disease. Mm -hmm. So they were looking, they were biopsying lymph nodes and the gut of individuals. And we were looking at this and then we discovered that the CD4 T cells were depleted from the gut right in the acute, right in the first few days of the infection. Mm. Now why that's important 
is that the gut contains most of the T cells in the whole body, right? You've got this massive organ, the gut. Yeah. And there's a thin layer of epithelium, single cell thick, that that separates you from a mountain of shit. <laughs> Literally. Literally a mountain <laughs> of shit. You have way, way more bacterial cells in your body than you have human cells, all hmm. right? You are a factory for shit that bacteria. Yeah. yeah. So you are full of shit. <laughs> Walking, talking, full Absolutely. of shit. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you've got this huge immune component in the gut. So the gut immune system is ginormous. And in the first few days of infection, you lose all those CD4 T cells. Um, and we, we discovered that. Now, we kind of rediscovered it because someone had described it in monkeys a few years before. Um, but everyone ignored him and his paper, which was <laughs> terrible because it was, you know, extraordinarily important paper. And, in fact, it had been described 20 years before by a lovely guy called Don Kotler. Hmm. Um, and he just had this observation. Look, all the T cells in the gut are gone. And we rediscovered it, as usual, with better tools. Um, and we added a lot more to it. So right. it wasn't just rediscovering. Um, and then from that, um, I, I think the field really changed because the importance of the gut was suddenly recognized. Not just the importance of depletion of CD4 T cells in the gut, but, but an understanding of how rapidly it occurs. Well, I was just going to ask, do you think that this also sparked the more recent research that's not necessarily to HIV, but how important gut bacteria is. I mean, we're seeing how it affects not just mood, yeah. but, you know, really brain power. and Yeah. Mood. I don't know. Um, I, I, actually, I don't think so. I think those hmm. are two separate fields that intersected. I, I think the microbiome field was happening anyway and would have happened sure. anyway. And now there's a huge microbiome HIV field if we hadn't described all this stuff that goes on in the gut, I don't think it would have ex intersected so soon. I see. I um, see. So it, it helped from our point of view, but I don't think it made a difference to the microbiome field. Just to briefly explain for the people listening what the study was, and obviously please correct me, but you were looking at um, 14 HIV-infected people and seven uninfected individuals. Mm -hmm. Uh, who were sexually active and high risk for infection. Mm. Which, by the way, what, what constitutes high risk for infection? What are the parameters that you kind of go by? I don't know. I'm, I'm not an okay. epidemiologist or, or that, that type of... That's, that's okay, a, a very okay. different I see. area of science. Okay. So, there you go. Um, now, was it, was it harder to do this study? Because you were, you were testing the GI tracts. Mm. So is that harder to do if you're just getting a simple kind of blood sample? Yeah. Comparison? Yeah. And that's the, the genius of my colleague, Tim Shaka at the University of Minnesota, um, who was actually a drama major, a theater major. And I think that, well, he says that that, that helped him. So he talks <laughs> to these volunteers and says, we'd like to cut out a lymph node and take a biopsy of your gut via colonoscopy. And they say, sure. <laughs> And, you know, I have to say that, that you'd think, and I still get this when I describe this to scientists in the field, they say, oh, but, you know, people won't, they won't accept that, they won't do it. The community, the HIV-infected community, and in particular the gay community that we've had most experience with in our studies, they are willing, ready to help. Hmm. They just want to help. And it's of absolutely no benefit to them, right? And we say this is of no benefit to you. There are potential deleterious effects. Nothing has happened, thankfully. 
so far with all these lymph node biopsies we've done, the gut biopsies that we've done, and they are really, really happy to donate body parts for our benefit to help research, wow. which they know will help their community and HIV-infected people. And it really does translate back to the clinic really, really rapidly. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine saying dramatically, can I have a colon? Can you give us a colonoscopy, please? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, well, but it really sounds like this is, I mean, monumental work in a sense that discovering not only where these T cells are aggregating in the body or, or yeah. where they're kind of found, but also that that is a possible place to really look for when it comes to, I mean, vaccination. Is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the work in the gut um, made people think about where you want the vaccine to work and mm -hmm. you want it to work at the mucosal surface. Right. So for, for gay men, it'll be uh, the rectal tissues and for women, it'll be the female genital tract. And so that really pointed um, not just the pathogenesis field in the direction of mucosal tissues, but also the vaccine field. Right. Now, the results also showed that um, there was a depletion yeah. of T cells in the gut. Yeah. And the reasoning for this, the primary reason that was put forward was that it was just that that's where it was being targeted. They will get infected. Right. Okay. Right. That the other one that was offered, but was also given less credence for, yeah. was that they might be shifting to a different location. Yeah, not true. Not true. No. Okay. Yeah. And, and you follow this paper up with a 2006 paper. Is that uh, right? Ah, yes. Yes. Um, can you just briefly talk about Microbial that? Microbial translocation. Yes. That, I think, was a stroke of... What I like to say is that my best ideas weren't my ideas. <laughs> I stole them from other fields. And I was working with these um, bone marrow transplanters. Yeah. And yeah. a big thing with bone marrow transplant is they really mess up the gut with all the radiation and the chemo and stuff like that. And I was chatting to them and they said, and you know, the gut becomes leaky and we get this thing called microbial translocation and it's just horrible. And all hmm. the bacteria leak across the gut into the peripheral circulation. I just thought, oh my God, I totally get it now. Because mm. we were trying to understand why people with HIV infection have a very high degree of systemic immune activation. It's like their immune system's on fire all the time. No oh, one could wow. figure out why. And I thought, it's microbial translocation. So all these microbial products, which are normally in the gut, mm -hmm. are leaking across. And they're very, very pro-inflammatory. So we looked for them, these microbial products, and we measured them. And they were raised, and they correlated with immune activation and all sorts of things. And it was hmm. so fucking difficult trying to <laughs> convince the HIV field that it was true. Wow. Because no one had ever thought about it. They didn't, just didn't think about it. They said, no, it can't possibly, it can't possibly be. And all the other fields like gastroenterology and hepatology, psychiatry even, everyone looked at us and said, yeah, obviously, when were you guys <laughs> going to realize that? And, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I was at a meeting in Boston, the big HIV meeting, the Croy meeting. Okay. And, you know, now microbial translocation basically has its own session wow. at Croy, and everyone's forgotten that I was the first one to describe it, which is great. Because yeah. when you can get to a, a level where people just think it's generally accepted and can't remember who wrote the first paper, I think you've really... Pretty impressive, it. yeah. That's, that's when you... And it doesn't bother me at all. I am really? Just, no. I'm delighted. You're just happy that it's... Like I just sit there at the now. back of the room smiling to myself. <laughs> One day you'll get an oil painting, you know. That would be nice. <laughs> so yeah. I guess the question is, 
Is, are there anti-inflammatories that are part of the cocktail yes, then? Yes, that, so that there's, are given to there's a lot HIV of research um, onto reducing inflammation because disease progression, the rate of disease progression when you've suppressed virus with drugs um, is predicted by the uh, degree of inflammation. Really predictive. Hmm. And it really correlates well with it. So there's a huge amount of work trying to find the causes of, of, of immune activation because it's not just microbial translocation, it's that it's multifactorial and to try and reduce those causes and reduce the consequences. So a lot of work going on anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, but it's difficult because, you know, the degree of inflammation is such that if you use just one drug to reduce inflammation, it's, it's like the, the HIV-infected person, it's like a house on fire, and with one of these drugs, all you're doing is chucking a glass of water at it. Yeah. So it's tricky, but there's, yes, a huge amount of work mm. to, to reduce inflammation. And it seems that... This is begging for interdisciplinary work, and you you know you're kind of well. We 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 do it that. all the time. Yeah. HIV is an interesting field. Um, uh, I don't know if it's come going to come across like really arrogant. <laughs> Go for it, that's but right. <laughs> um, HIV is an incredibly collaborative field. Incredibly collaborative, and I would say more so than any other field of the basic sciences, biological Whoa. sciences. Wow. And it's happened like that because we have to collaborate, because it's a, it's an international problem, it's a global problem. So we get samples from Africa, mm. Thailand, all over the world. So we have to work with the clinicians, and we have to work with the nurses, and we have to work with the activists. And we get it, and it's become a team effort. And generally speaking, we're nice to each other. We don't have our little mm -hmm. turfs that we defend. We work together. And it's almost, you know, in physics they have big science, like Large Hadron Collider, where there's 3,000 people <laughs> working in a collaboration together. Well, we don't have 3,000 people, but we have 300 people mm. working in one collaboration, collaboration. And the other fields don't have that. Cancer is beginning to become more like that. And I think the lesson was learnt from, from the HIV field. So we're very collaborative. And we love going to the other fields, going to the cancer field, going to the aging field, going to the gastroenterology field, and <laughs> saying, guys, tell us about what you do. Tell us your stuff. What can we learn? We do that all the time. So it's, it's immensely collaborative, and it's an absolute pleasure. It's an honor, you know, working with all of these people. Very nice. I work with my friends. There's nothing better than that. You can't get, can't get anything no, better than that. It's great. Yeah, I saw you, did, you do a little work with um, leukemia as well. And... I do, because of um, the, the work that I do as human immunology. Right. We've, uh, we've been collaborating with the leukemia people, the transplanters, who are fucking heroes in my mind. They are yeah, absolutely definitely. unbelievable what they do. They take people with a cancer. They bring them as close to death as possible with chemo and radiation, all that kind of stuff. And then if that weren't enough, they give them somebody else's immune system and they cure their cancer. And mm. they look after their patients with such a degree of obsessive care it's amazing mm. i'm totally in awe of these people and now they're doing it with the, these new immune therapies at, uh, at quite a few different places uh, immune therapies for leukemias and lymphomas that are saving the lives of people who would for sure be dead in a few months time it's miraculous mm. although there's no such things as miracles because there's no such thing <laughs> as god so as we discussed as earlier. we discussed earlier okay so i just want to get into a little bit about uh, again, I was reading up on some of the work that you're doing, and it emphasized that you try to avoid in vitro testing whenever possible. 
Yeah, we so, don't like to mess around with things in vitro because it changes the state of the cell. Okay. We don't really do experiments as such. We just try to biopsy everything as much as possible. Okay. We measure as much as possible. And then we kind of try to put it all together and tell a story. And, and it's sort of a bit like, I tell people it's a bit like archaeology. Hmm. You know, we, we dig up little bits of pot and put it all together <laughs> and tell the story of a civilization from that. Or it's a bit like looking at the galaxies and the stars with telescopes. And uh, you, can, you can tell a lot from observation. Hmm. Remember, it was, um, it was people, you know, it was, what was his name? Eddington, who confirmed... Einstein's theory of relativity by looking at the stars and the planets with telescopes. What? I didn't know that. That's, that's very cool. Read up on it. I have much to learn from you. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's also where we got to where we are today, just by observing. Relativity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I can understand that. And as well, I suppose it's if it's in vitro, it might be a much more sterile environment and not as realistic. All right, that's what we were talking about. Yeah, we, we don't want to change things. We, yeah. just want to, okay, okay. we just want to measure what's in the body. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Got that. Now, some of your work also uh, involving vaccines, and please correct me because I, I don't want to misspeak. Um, Try to keep it as scientifically literate as possible. But in you know very uh, specific terms, you you try to focus a vaccine that might uh, elicit these kind of beefed up macho T cells. Yeah. Now, is that through? genetically engineering them or is that literally eliciting what is already there and if so how is that how is that well done? it's just like a normal vaccine you uh you know you have a very low frequency of t-cells that will be cells and will be cells okay. that will recognize bits of hiv um like you have you know a low frequency that will recognize bits of flu and so okay on, so I see, everything I see. and so what we do are is to try and find ways of delivering bits of hiv safely to someone so that we boost the frequency of those cells and, as you say, beef them up and make them all macho. Um, or if you want to be a little bit more feminist, you can think of them as Amazons. <laughs> yes, um, Amazonian right. T-cells. <laughs> right. And uh, what I mean by that is we want, to, we want them to be highly functional. We don't want just lots of them, we want them to be functional. Right. It's not necessarily quantity, it's the quality. It's both. Okay. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the drugs before. Uh, from the uh, HIV-infected people that I know and that I've talked to, there's always, you know, not, not the complaint that they have drugs mm. um, or even the expense. It's more so the adverse reactions to the drugs. Um, is that is something that's being worked on? Is that oh, if you're going to... Yeah, but, you know, the drugs these days are... Very safe, very few side effects. Mm. Uh, so treatment these days is one drug <laughs> once a day with very few side effects. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's no longer a cocktail. It's No. No, oh, the drug contains. The tablet is a Insta cocktail of I drugs. See, I but, see. You know, it's three drugs in one mm -hmm. pill. And um, there are side effects, of course, but, mm. but it's not like the old days. You know, and I, I, I know many people who have been on these drugs since the early days and... Uh, they're very happy with the, the current lot of drugs that are available. And, you know, in the future, we are talking about long-acting modalities. So it might be one tablet every three or four months or one injection every three or four months. I was going to say an injection, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that'll be the future of the of the uh, of the illness. You know, the real problem is is getting these drugs out to as many people as possible, and mm. and that's um, well, that's a problem <laughs> of politics, infrastructure, delivery, all of those things. Not a problem of science anymore. Mm. Great West Wing episode about that. Loved it. I didn't see that. Oh, oh, talking about the, right government. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to say this now, so I can say that I said so because I'm a government employee, right? Yeah, I'm. I have to say that I am that the opinions that I am expressing are not those of the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Health and Human Services, or of President Obama. <laughs> um, and I am here speaking as a private citizen with an expanse and expertise knowledge on the subject. Go. All right. And well, I'm, I'm not being paid for this either. <laughs> you got paid in tea, you know. Tea. I had a cup of tea. That, that's something. Right. If you're lucky. Gonna, I'll have to declare that when I go. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll start wrapping this up. I just have a few more questions. What does the future look like for your research, for HIV research, for vaccine research? So I'm an optimist and I think the future looks good. I like to look at it this way. Um, I, I always use diabetes as an example. I can't remember the year exactly. I think it may be 1922. And, you know, in, in the spring of 1922, if you were diagnosed with diabetes, uh, you went to a sanatorium to die. In the summer of 1922, enough insulin was being manufactured in laboratories that if you were diagnosed with diabetes in the summer of 22, you went on insulin and you lived. Hmm. From one month to the next. So that is the trajectory of science. And we will roll out the drugs to everyone and there will be better treatments and there will be a vaccine. And I'm pretty sure there will be, maybe not a cure, but certainly remission. We will succeed because mm. that's what we do is to succeed. I, I hope so, but it sounds like, I mean, you know, your 2014 paper about the um, slow down of the infection in macaques, it's already kind of yeah. good. I mean, well, there's already, there's yeah. tons of stuff. The fact that the drugs came out in the 90s. We're getting there. We're getting there. I just have kind of one more thing, which is, now you're, you're mentioning your other colleagues and you've mentioned how, you know, the approach you take when you're working in the field of HIV and immunology is very, you know, you're, you're sharing, you were talking about how collaborative it was. Mm. In 2014, they had the Malaysia Airline plane crash, which a lot of HIV and AIDS mm. researchers were headed to Australia for a big conference. Mm. And unfortunately, there were, uh, what the report said at least, lead researchers in the field. Yes. And I read a Time article after that that said the entire field would be stalled. I suppose my question is, because it's so expansive, this field, it, is it... Was that dramatized or were there really, I mean, not to take away any... They they thought there were more HIV researchers on that flight than there actually were. Um, But there were some and, um, you know, I knew them relatively well. My boss knew them extremely well. Um, Was was the field stalled as a result? I would say, yeah. Mm. In some ways, you know, the people who died were uh, immensely important, had been immensely important to the field and changed the field in many ways. And so I think for that reason, we, we're, we're missing something. The, the impact of that, I don't know. I don't know how big the impact is, but did it affect the field negatively, not just emotionally, yeah. but practically? 
Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Which is why I would love them to bring those bastards who did this to trial. Well, it's a loss for everybody, hmm. um, especially to the field, it hmm. seems. Now, while we wrap this up, I'd like to ask uh, my guests. Now, you have a platform, so if there's anything else, you don't have to. A platform. A platform. A You, you are talking oh, to I see. the realms Okay. whoever's on the internet. Yeah. If there's anything you'd like to say, the floor is yours, whether it's HIV-related, you know, or... Yeah, I'd like to say this. As much I'd as like to say this. Um, the politicians are threatening, and are, in fact, doing it, cutting in real terms the um, amount of funding that goes to basic HIV research, not only basic research, but clinical HIV research as well. So I would like to say to you guys listening, do not let this happen. Be vocal and write to whoever your politicians are and tell them that they have to support increased funding for HIV research. You That's heard it here first. That's right. I mean, I've said it well, before, so it's, it's not really funny. I suppose <laughs> this is the first time it's been said on your podcast. That's right. Right. That's what I was alluding to. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll say, you can always have more funding for marine biology, but I'm yeah, slightly biased. No, fund know. HIV research. Marine biology. HIV. Um, all right, lovely. And that's that's pretty much our show. So, Danny, thanks for thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Do I shake your hand now? You can do if you like. They can't see. It's on the they radio. They can't see. It's been, we had handshakes. <laughs> so there you go. By the way, just really quick. How yes. do you feel about the referendum? Do you care at all? Which referendum? For the UK to, in or out? to leave the EU. No, I'd, I'd rather stay in. Um, uh, you know what worries me about Europe? Um, is... Um, there are, there are a lot of rather frightening right-wing parties and politicians who are very powerful in Europe, mm. and uh, they worry me. And having Britain in Europe, I think, um, uh, is a bit of a voice of sanity in all of this. Uh, you know, Marine Le Pen, powerful in France. Yeah. These parties are powerful in countries like Austria and Slovakia, and, and that mm. worries me. So I tend to think that the, the voice of British politics is a voice of moderation. And I think it's easier to do it within Europe than without Europe. Oh, 100%. And also, the scientific funding that comes from the EU is pretty useful. I don't know how much of a difference, you know, financially, business, everything like that, it'll, sure. it'll make. I see arguments on both sides. I don't know that. But I think it's better for Europe for Britain to be in it. I can definitely see that point. Though, speaking of right-wing... And we have a queen. Figurehead. We have a queen. You do have a queen. And she's incredibly cool. She is. Yeah. She is. Old Lizzie. Lizzie. She's awesome. She's, don't call her old Lizzie. <laughs> Other, do you realize I have to cut you down with my regimental saber now that you've called her that? Oh, now you're bringing the empire back. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the future of the states is also quite a... Oh, I'm not worried about that. I think the good side... You think it'll take it care of itself? I think so. I hope so. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, now we will actually say goodbye. All right, goodbye. So, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will put uh, supporting information, as always, on the blog. So check it out if you're interested in what Danny does. And you should, because it's really interesting work. So thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. That is our show for today. But don't forget to like and share us on Facebook and SoundCloud. Spread the love. Tell your friends and family. You can follow me on Twitter at AnotherFogel and subscribe on iTunes at The Imposter Podcast. <laughs>
Other than that, we will see you next week for a brand new episode of The Imposter, Thursday at 2 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, as always. All right, you beautiful people. See you then.